Okay. Thanks, Ross. Very good reading, brother. I reckon you should read more often. So today we're beginning a brand new sermon series entitled, as you can see, Cherry-Picked Bible Verses. That's a bit peculiar, right? What's that about? Well, the reason we're calling it that is because I, I think there is a habit um, among far too many evangelicals today, far too many Christians in our contemporary, particularly our Western contemporary culture, where we, I guess, read the Bible, view the Bible as sort of a, a collection of, of random, unrelated, inspirational snippets, kind of like little tweets, you know, that you can just sort of grab here and grab there. You know, essentially, look, if you're, if you're feeling blue, if you're feeling sort of down, hey, pick up the Bible, and maybe you'll get something. And that'll sort of just, that'll kind of be your caffeine for the day, you know? Um, problem with that is, is that's not why the Bible was written in the first place, right? Um, and when we do that, we actually shortchange ourselves from understanding often so much that's there. We, we miss a whole lot. We, sh we really shortchange ourselves. It, it's also dangerous because often when we get into this habit of cherry-picking certain verses that we like, uh, we can hold on to a promise or an idea that God might not have ever said. And then what happens when it doesn't come true? Well, we're jaded, we're angry, we're disappointed. But the problem is God never said it in the first place, potentially, right? So our favorite verse, whatever that might be, might look nice hanging up in a picture frame on, the, on our wall in our lounge room, or it might look nice as a magnet on our fridge. But do we know, are we certain we know what God intended that verse to mean. Not what it means to us. Do you hear the difference? What is God's intention for that text? Not what it means to us, not how it makes us feel. What does God say it means? Are we being formed? Are we being changed by what God has actually said? That's why we're doing this series. We want to look closely at some typical verses people handpick and discover together what they're actually saying. Now, that said, the goal here is not to make anyone feel stupid or if you have that magnet on your fridge to go home and burn it or, or whatever, especially if the pastor comes over, hide it, and you know, then put it back when he leaves or whatever. Okay, so that, that's, not, that's not the goal here. Um, the, also, can, let me say this too. The goal, it, as you hopefully become better equipped to understand what some of these scriptures are actually saying, um, that you embrace it with humility and thankfulness to God in your hearts, not as a club to use against other people, right? So, you know, if you see the verse that someone says and if they've got a t-shirt, you, you're missing the whole point 
if, if you go up to someone, oh, well, you know, that's not what that says. You know, you've cherry-picked that verse. That's, that's really missing the whole heartbeat behind this. So the goal is not to make anyone feel stupid or embarrassed, but what's the goal? The goal, the goal, listen now, the goal is to plumb the breadth and the depth of what the scriptures are actually saying. What has God actually said? And he's given us, listen, he's given us minds to understand it. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit to understand what's written there. So as we better understand these popular verses, I pray the Lord uses the series and looking at these passages more particularly to, to shape you, to transform you. The end game here, friends, is your spiritual growth. You understand? That, that should be your, the end game. The end game is not to feel like you got a club or, or you got whatever. The end game is to feel that, hey, now I can better worship and know God and follow him and help others. That that's really should be the end game of this series. So let's kick it off, shall we? Let's, let's grab one of the most, if there was one passage today that's probably kicked around more than any, it's this one, Philippians 4, 13. Which says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How many of you have heard that verse before? Amen. Well, you've heard it just now, but one of your favorites. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here, Rhonda. Yeah. So there was a cherry picked, wonderful, you've got the t shirt. That's amazing, Nigel. That is awesome. Glad you're here too, brother. If ever there was a cherry-picked verse, it's got to be this one. How many of you have heard this verse applied to sport, right? Um, I can win basketball games. I can improve my golf swing, which I need help with that. Um, I can run a marathon. Because it doesn't say some things, does it? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. A little bit more serious, though. Some people will take this passage and apply it to goals they have in life. I can get that job. I can marry that person. I can beat this cancer. I can triumph over anything. No matter the challenge, God has promised to fix it for you, to help you dodge the difficulty in it. You can do everything, especially extraordinary stuff, just as long as you have this passage sort of floating around in your head somewhere or maybe, you know, writing it out on your soccer boots or, or whatever it might be, you are guaranteed victory and success. Because again, it doesn't say some things. It says all things, all things. So what is Philippians 4.13 actually saying? Well, that's what I want us to discover this morning. So let's do that together. If you have your Bibles, open up. And I encourage you so much to bring your Bibles. This is, if, again, if there was one series where you should bring your Bible, it should be this one. Because otherwise you're just taking my word for it. And look, you Aussies are too cynical to do that. You are. So either you're just taking my word for it or you don't want to bring it. I don't even know. I don't know why you come and don't bring your Bible. So bring your Bible because I want you to see with your own eyes or your electronic Bible Ross, you, you actually have a physical one. Wow. He always has. I always look at him because he's always got the electronic one. 
So, and, look, and, and let me just say this to you. It's okay if you have an NIV. That's fine. Like, it, that, you want to have a physical copy of the Bible in front of you. We're actually going to look at a translation today that just will blow your mind how it interprets this passage. Interprets, not translate, this passage. But we'll, I won't sell the farm yet. We'll, we'll get there. All right, so let's, um, let's look to the Lord in prayer before we open our Bibles and, and dive into this. Father, there have been so many voices clamoring for our attention this past week. We need your voice. We need to hear from you. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would take up his word and speak it with life-changing power into every one of our hearts. For the glory of Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So out of a show of hands, when we talk about the book of Philippians, how many of you have read the book of Philippians before? Out of a show of hands. Yeah, great. Um, who would say that it's probably one of your favorite books? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a fabulous book. I mean, many Christians go to this book because of its inspiring message of joy, even in the midst of trying difficult circumstances. Right? Paul is, is actually in prison. He's, he's writing this letter from prison to this church. Another reason that Philippians stands out to people is it's got these powerful, pithy statements, right? If you've ever read the book before, you could just grab so many of these little pithy statements. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the typical one. But how about this one? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Boom, that's a pithy statement. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. Those are strong statements, powerful statements, really cement down into our minds. The only caveat with that, though, it sometimes results in people reading it in sort of a piecemeal way. In other words, you miss the whole because you're distracted with the parts. So the problem with this bits and pieces approach is it doesn't also do justice to why Paul wrote it in the first place. You have to understand this about Philippians. This is a real letter written to real people. So when, when we look at Philippians, it's fine if certain passages jump off, right? And they stick and that's great but you have to see the whole and not just the parts. It's a letter. In fact, don't just take my word for it, for yourself. Philippians 1.1, go to the very first verse. We're not going to go through the whole book, don't worry. Philippians 1.1, look how this is a letter, right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Notice, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then in verse 12, Paul talks about his situation. If you look in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that, that is being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So you have, you have to get to the 12th verse till he finally mentions himself, but he does. And then finally, which Ross just read for us in chapter 4. If you go to chapter 4, he talks about this gift that they sent. The gift being the presence of Epaphrodites, 
but also just an actual physical gift that they give to him. They actually haven't seen Paul in a while, and they haven't been able to give a gift to Paul, a physical monetary gift. And so, Philippians 4.10, if you're there, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that it now at length, remember it's been a while, you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, one thing that jumps off the pages in Philippians, if you read this letter, is the genuine affection that Paul has for this church. Right? It's a very warm letter. And in turn, this church had a, has a strong reciprocal love and, and warmth towards Paul, and hence they, they actually give him money. Right? They want to support him in his missionary endeavors. But here's the kind of awkward bit, if you're looking carefully in your Bible there. It's kind of a funny set of verses because there seems to be a little bit of back and forth with Paul. Like, on the one hand, Paul expresses his gratitude for their gift. We saw that. But on the other hand, he wants them to know that his own independence and contentment is what sort of sustains him, <laughs> right? I mean, look again, verse, verse 10. I, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Well, you're welcome. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So, so do you see that there? He appreciates their generosity. He had a real need, which they met, but he wants them to see a bigger picture. At the end of the day, whatever situation he encounters, ultimately, what anchors him is contentment. Did you see that there? Two different times in this short passage, he uses this word contentment. I wonder how you'd define that. I wonder how you'd define that word contentment. Some people might say, well, I guess it's just learning to, you know, deal with your situation, or maybe it's, someone might actually say what contentment is. It's if I have this, I have that, or whatever. The, the idea of contentment here means to be self-sufficient, independent of needing help from anybody. Did you hear that? Now, hold on. If I were to say that, that sounds pretty prideful. Right? I mean, on the face of it, if I were to say, I'm self-sufficient, I don't need anybody or anything, you'd think, arrogant. <laughs> right? We think, well, I, I would if I heard someone say that very, especially if they said it with, like, a lot of confidence. In fact, you, you sort of wonder here if some eyebrows are being raised as this letter was read out loud to the church in Philippi. Because it's a real letter written to real people. As the letter is Read out, okay, now, come on, church, we're gathered. This is what Paul says, and he says, I rejoice, thank you for the gift, blah, 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 and no matter what, I am content. I wonder if people would have been going, ooh, that's, that's a bit odd. Do you know why? Because this word content, it, it's actually borrowed, the word itself, it's borrowed from pagan, stoic philosophers of the day. So it's interesting. This was a whole school of, of pagan Stoic philosophy that talked about this idea of contentment. It, it describes someone who is totally independent, totally self-reliant and detached of all things and all people. 
One Stoic philosopher named Seneca put it this way. Listen, he says, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Do you understand? The Stoics of the day, they applauded, they praised the idea of this sort of self-made man, this self-reliant superman, really, who was either strong enough or possessed enough, owned enough, where they didn't need anything or anybody. And they saw contentment as a rising from oneself. Kind of sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? So why did Paul use this word then? Does he want us to know that, that somehow, you know, through it all, through thick, and, through thick and thin, come hell or high water, that, you know, somehow he's been able just to maintain a, a stiff upper lip? Is, is, that kinda, is that what Paul's after? Well, I heard a no. It seems like it does, though. I'd actually argue with that. Because if you look at the text, it seems as if that's exactly what he's saying. Look at verse 11 again. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. It seems like he's saying, Look, circumstances do not change my contentment. When I have an abundance and when I have nothing, I'm equally content. When I've been raised up to the heights or when I am down in the dumps, I am equally content. Hmm. Smells a bit stoic to me, Paul. Maybe you and Seneca weren't all that different. Maybe you and Seneca are actually saying the same thing. Or are they? Again, if you look at verse 12, you'll actually discover that though the same word is used, the definitions are worlds apart. Does that make sense? Though the word itself might be the same, same word, entirely different definition. What Paul does is actually take the word and he flips it upside down. Look at verse 12 again. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, whenever Paul says, I have learned the secret, your ears should probably perk up at that point. I mean, imagine if LeBron James came up to you and said, I have learned the secret of playing basketball the way I do. I mean, you'd, you'd probably be all, that, that's a good basketball player in case you don't know who that is. Yeah, Nigel's not nodding his head. Yeah, yeah, you know who that is. Imagine if LeBron James says, I learned the secret. I've, I've got a secret, Nigel, and here it is. I mean, you'd be all ears like, wow, there's a secret to your game. That's amazing. And here we have... The Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian who's ever lived, says, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. I know how to live in poverty. I know how to live in wealth. I know how to fly in first class or coach. I know how to be in the nosebleed seats or on the front. How? How? How is it, Paul? How do you know these things? How could you be equally content with little or with much. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, remember the Stoics believe that contentment comes from within. It's a state of mind. You, you make yourself content. 
Whereas Paul says, his content, he is content not because he is independent, but because he is totally dependent upon someone else, namely Jesus. You see, his contentment did not come through willpower or positive thinking. It was the Lord who enabled him to be content in any and every circumstance. Whatever came Paul's way, regardless of the situation, be it up, be it down, Christ strengthened him to meet it. Which is amazing when you think about this brother's life. Let me just read some of the things Paul talks about when he sort of looks through his life and the sufferings he's endured. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then listen to what he says a few verses later. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions. Now, you may be thinking, Paul, you're nuts. You're content with that? And he says, listen, listen, how he finishes it, and he folds it up by saying this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you understand? Philippians 4.13 is, is, is not a blank check to apply to whatever we want. Or it's not to be used as some get-out-of-jail-free card. No, the context determines the meaning, doesn't it? And the context is about contentment. Contentment. I mean, just look at verse 12 and 13 together. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In fact, you might, just so you don't come across this in a few years and you forgot long about this sermon, you might want to just take a little arrow and draw an arrow up in your Bible to the preceding verses so that you know that there's a flow of thought here, that this is about contentment and that you don't start reading something, some promise here that has nothing to do with it. It's also important too, by the way, it's one reason why Bible translations are important because there's a Bible translation and then there's a Bible interpretation. Do you know the difference? Uh, translation, ESV, NIV, NASB, etc. Interpretation, the message, the Passion Translation. Because listen to what the Passion Translation says. It's, it's insane. It's, I know what it means to lack and I know what it means. I'm reading from the Passion Translation, Philippians 4. I know what it means to lack, and I know what it means to experience overwhelming abundance, for I am trained in the secret of overcoming all things, whether in fullness or in hunger, and I find that the strength of Christ's explosive power infuses me to conquer every, every difficulty. 
Well, that's an interpretation. That sounds like Jesus is the Red Bull who gives you your wings. Again, the point of that is not to go burn the Passion Translation, but you see the difference. And this is why translations are important. The, 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 the goal here is contentment. In fact, it's a, it's, it's a rarity, isn't it? Contentment is a rarity. In fact, there is a whole book written by a Puritan pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs, and this is the title of his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You hear that? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I mean, contentment, let's be honest, it's hard to come by. Our culture is based not on contentment, but on creating consumer appetite, right? Appetizers know, I mean, I, I took a whole class in marketing when I was in uni, and I learned that in order to sell a product, in order to produce a, a successful campaign, we have to make a target, we have to make the audience feel as if they absolutely need to have this product. I need it. They must provoke. That's what marketers do. They're not like the devil. I'm just saying that, that's what... That's what happens. They provoke dissatisfaction and discontentment with our lives for which their particular product is the only answer, the only remedy. It's all about bigger, faster, cleaner, smarter, freer, wealthier, healthier, and happier than you could now or ever hope to be, provided, of course, you buy our toothpaste or use our deodorant or drive our car or use our smartphone. It's not just a new product. Oh, no, 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 no. It's a whole new you. But think about it. Our whole economy is, is, on, is really predicated on dissatisfaction and discontentment. And as such, it runs totally counter to the rare jewel of Christian contentment that Paul has discovered. So when, as we think about contentment, here's what I want to think about. Two things to walk away with. Number one, Contentment is learned, not acquired. Contentment is learned, not acquired. Paul, if you look here, twice he says in verse 11 and in verse 12 that he learned. You see that? He learned it. Paul had to learn to be content. Is that great or what? <laughs> Paul didn't just see Jesus and become content. Paul had to learn how to be content. That means there's hope for you and there's hope for me. If we are not living in a state of contentment, and if you're there and you're in that space this morning, friend, and you feel restless and discontent, join the club. Paul had to learn contentment as well. Contentment is not innate to Christian experience. It is not, it, it's learned actually. You don't just trust Jesus and suddenly become content. Yeah, sure. There is a certain kind of contentment that comes immediately when we trust in Jesus Christ. But there are battles of contentment to fight all the time. And we don't just become content because we come to Christ. We have to learn contentment. That's encouraging if you're struggling with contentment. If you're sitting in your chair now and you, you feel the restlessness, that's encouraging. In fact, go way to the left in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Uh, it's a short little psalm, Psalm 131. This is a lovely picture here, and it's relevant to my life, actually, of a nursing infant. It's, it's full and sleeping in its mother's arms, perfect contentment and utter security. This is a song of ascents as they were heading up to Jerusalem. 
Psalm 131 says, Oh Lord, I still hear pages turning, so I'll just wait. Psalm 131, just a couple verses, it's three verses. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Again, this picture of this sleeping infant in its mother's arms, content and secure, that's what the psalmist has found. That's a great picture. That's what Paul's found. And they both tell us hope in the Lord. Now, here's the deal. We are meant to be restless and discontent when we look anywhere other than to Christ. We are meant to be restless and discontent when we look anywhere other than to Christ. We were made to root our contentment in Jesus. It would be wrong to be content if you don't know him. Your contentment is an illusion apart from Christ. I wish I could say that to every Australian. Your contentment is an illusion apart from Christ. Augustine famously prayed this. Listen to this. Thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. We have restless hearts when we seek to fill our appetites with money and sex and power and reputation and stuff. And our hearts crave more and more, do they not? Because they were made for more. They were made for Christ. And it is Him that you will only find true joy and lasting satisfaction. Contentment is found in Jesus and in Him alone. It's learned, not acquired. Last, contentment is independent of circumstances. Contentment is independent of circumstances. Now, why do I, where do I get that from? Oh, I don't know. Paul, where's he writing from? Jail. Jail. <laughs> exactly. And he doesn't know if he's going to go to the chop block or not. He actually does go to the chop block eventually. So, you know, contentment is not, well, once I have the house, once I have the spouse, once I have the car, once I get the holiday, one, you know, fill in the blank, right? Whatever your thing is. Contentment is independent of circumstances. Paul, Paul's in prison. He's out of money. Someone should have shared Philippians 4.13 with the, with the bloke. They should have said, why are you down? Well, come on, man. You, you know, you're going you're gonna to get out of here and you're going to win the Super Bowl after this. He, he learned to be content and rejoice regardless of his physical circumstances. You see, the circumstances of our lives are always changing. 
And if we seek to find contentment in changing circumstances, then it will constantly be a roller coaster ride. Instead, we learn from Paul that he found contentment not in the external circumstances which ebb and flow, but with an eternal relationship with the living God who does not change. At the core of his being, he is constantly recalibrating his thinking. He fights for contentment. It's a battle. Our hearts are prone to wander and be discontent. Like I said, advertising is left, right, and center around us. Our hearts are prone to think that if we can have a particular relationship that we so desire, we'll have the contentment. But it's not. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Our hearts, as Augustine said, remember, are restless until they come to rest in him. Where is your heart this morning? Are you content? Has your heart landed with your creator, with your savior? Are you chasing after the air, grasping things that will never satisfy? Turn to Christ. Find all of your joy and satisfaction in him so that when no matter what circumstance comes, you might go through a difficulty that you could never even imagine going through this week. But Christ, if he's your greatest joy, will see you through it because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You can be content by the grace of God. Some of you have walked through some heavy trials this last year. I know. I've sat by bedsides. I've prayed with many of you. There's the remedy. Find your satisfaction in Christ. Treasure him above everything else. And then all of the circumstances around you will fade. Doesn't mean it's going to be happy, by the way. Doesn't mean you're going to be some obnoxious, you know, glib, happy, happy, joy, joy person coming in. But you're anchored in the eternal God himself. You're, you're anchored in him and his promises that he'll never leave you, nor forsake you, that your ultimate hope and joy and satisfaction is in him. Regardless of what comes this week, regardless if you drive home after this, and on your way, you got in a car accident. You'd be anchored in him. Now, when I say that last thing, this is my transition to next week. When I say this last thing, go home and have a car accident, some people see, hear that and they go, don't speak that over me. Have you heard that before? Don't jinx me, basically. You, your words have the power of life and death. Cherry pick verse number two. So be here next week because that's exactly what we're going to do. We are hopefully going to see what Proverbs is actually saying. And so I'd encourage you to be here. Uh, again, maybe some of you haven't heard someone say that before. You know, don't speak that over me. But if you haven't, you'll learn about it next week. So be here next week. Look, if you're here and you're in Christ and your ultimate hope now is resting in Jesus and his work on the cross for you. And I'd encourage you to participate as a church body together. We
call communion, where we're remembering Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. Christ Jesus. If you're trusting in that Lord, the Lord himself, then celebrate this time. If not, then I'd encourage you to allow these items to go by. Don't feel bad. Don't feel awkward. Don't feel embarrassed. It's worse just to take them flippantly, trust me, than just to allow those to go. Take the embarrassment. But don't just leave it with that. Process, why isn't it that you know God? Why isn't it that you're trusting in Christ? So I ask the helpers to come forward as we distribute the elements. Go ahead and take off, as Ross said, all the bits and pieces. And we'll, um, I'll read a passage for us, and then we'll take it together as a church.